Welcome to Life-Altering Events with Frank Sakari. When something positive or negative changes in our lives, we are basically at a fork in the road. Where does the next step take us? What do we do as reactions to something that has already happened? How do we prevent the negative aspects from happening again? Whether in business or personal parts of your life, you can get back on track. We'll talk about it today. Now, here is your host, Frank Sakari. Good morning. I hope you're all having a wonderful Tuesday. My name is Frank Zakari, and you're listening to Life-Altering Events on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. People often ask me, what exactly is a life-altering event? And I tell them it is something that we choose or something that is thrust upon us that dramatically alters the trajectory of our life. Now, everybody has those aha moments in our life, events that change our life for better or for worse. These life-altering events occur in every aspect of our professional or and or our personal life. Now, try as we may, it is impossible to completely separate the events in our personal life from our professional life. Now, believe me, I tried to do that for years, and I failed miserably. Now, what life-altering events presents us with is an opportunity to seize the moment and make a difference in our life and in the life of our loved ones. They're also a fork in the road where we have a choice. We can fall apart, or we can pick up the pieces, deal with our grief, and start moving forward toward better times and better people. Always remember this. It is never too late to have the life you want and you deserve. Now, as you listen to this show over the coming weeks and months and hopefully years, I urge you to participate in an upcoming show. If you have a life-altering event that could inspire others, visit the life-altering event page on voiceamerica.com and send me an email. It sits under contact host or email host and tell me about the event that changed your life so drastically. How did you address it and where are you now? We'll review the content, and if it fits well into one of our programs, we'll contact you about using it on a future broadcast. Okay? I look forward to hearing your story. Let's talk about it. Today, what we're going to get into is creating an innovative mindset. Now, this is a talk I have given to dozens of organizations, businesses, students, and recently at a workshop at Arizona State University. I want to share this with you. Because creating an innovative mindset is critical to success. One major life-altering event is, is trying to start your own business. Now, I've been where you are. I was a small and medium-sized business CEO for, for over 20 years. And I believe the most difficult job in the world is to be a successful small business owner. Okay, why is that? Because the rules are constantly changing. And change is coming at us faster than our ability to understand them and react. In the business world, there's a new regulation, or there's a new tax, or the city comes up to you and says, hey, you know that sign you've had in front of your building for 10 years? Well, we've changed our code and you can't use that anymore. Or there's a new payroll deduction. Once you think you have navigated all of these regulatory landmines, then the technology changes, or a major new competitor moves in around the corner, or worse yet, Amazon decides that they're going to come into your market. Remember when Amazon just sold books? Remember way back then? Now Amazon's ruling the world. So how do you create an economic impact amidst all this change? 
When I was starting my own businesses, people used to tell me, well, you know, Frank, you have to work harder. And I go, work harder? What are you, crazy? When I hear that from somebody, I want to slap them upside their head. Stay, to stay successful has nothing to do with working harder or working smarter. It has to do with your imagination. It's about thinking different. It's about asking what if and having the courage to act. All right? So let's take a look at the plight of small businesses today. Inc. Magazine reported recently that one in five Americans would like to own a business. One in five. Now that's second only to home ownership in the pursuit of the American dream. Now more often than not, this dream becomes a nightmare. And this is the nightmare. Forbes magazine reported 50 to 60% of small businesses will fail within three years. 80% will fail within five years. And the number that blew me away, 70% of SBA loan applications are rejected. Now think about that for a second. The Small Business Administration, whose function in life is to help fund small businesses, rejects 70% of loan applications. So what's going on here? What's going wrong? Why is there so much failure? Something is seriously wrong with the process of preparing entrepreneurs. Now I work with a great number of people, they're very capable, they have tremendous ideas, they're very intelligent, they have a first class research, some of them have a patent. But what they don't understand is the process of moving from the research and development mindset, which is the intellectual mindset, to a business owner mindset, which is an innovative mindset. Now, as I was working with people and I start to see how many organizations have programs, classes, webinars, seminars, whose intent is to assist aspiring entrepreneurs through the startup process. So you would think with all these programs and all these organizations designed to help small businesses, the odds of success would be better. They're not. We meet with so many people who have been through these programs and the comments that we hear, and they're not satisfied, and the comments that we hear most often are, number one, most of the presenters have never owned or started a business. Number two, they talk about theory and not reality. And the third thing we hear is they provide very basic information about what to do and very little to nothing on how or why to do it. Now something has to change or this pattern of failure is going to continue to get worse. Now, as I talk to more people, we hear, well, intelligence is what it's all about. Is intelligence alone enough to succeed in business? I'm a mentor for the University of California Entrepreneurship Academy. Now, these are 10 major research universities in California, and they're the best in the world. The, you know who they are. They're UC Berkeley, UCLA, UC Davis, UC Irvine, etc. And I was in a meeting with them, and they told me that the university system has 19,224 patents, licenses, or pending patents and licenses. And everybody in the room was all impressed. We all went, wow, that's amazing. And then this professor said, well, don't get too excited about that because 60%, I'm going to say that again, 60% of the revenue comes from five patents. Five. Now, what do we have here? 
We've got these incredibly intelligent individuals, great technical teams, great scientific teams, patents, and that's simply not a ticket to success. It doesn't guarantee anything. So why is there so much failure? Well, the UC system went in and did their research. This is what they do, their research universities. And they came up with their five reasons of why there's such a high failure ratio with these very intelligent individuals. All right, the first one they said there's no market need. All right, no market need is a nice way to say nobody cares. You don't pass the so what test. Number two was there's not enough money. The third one was not the right team. Fourth was poor execution. And the last number five was lost to competition. Now, as I listened to them talking, I thought, are these reasons or are these excuses? What's the real problem here? Let's, let's delve a little deeper. One of the things you find with just highly intelligent individuals is they're going to say, we're smart. We can figure this out. How hard are we developed a product? We developed a new patent. How hard is it to create a business plan? We'll figure it out. Another one I heard that, that I just absolutely love is, I know a guy who can help me. All right, now I'm an Italian. I grew up in New York. When I hear I know a guy, that's usually not a good thing. They're also unwilling to pay for guidance or assistance. Very often that, in, that intellectual mindset that's needed for research and design and development is very different than the innovative mindsets that's required to establish to fund and sustain a business. Very few people on the planet can do both. Very few have that expertise. Even Steve Jobs failed miserably his first time at Apple. So the bottom line, as I understand it, and as I have people that I have worked with is, most businesses fail because they're simply not adequately prepared. All right, let me give you an example. One of the things you have to look at if you're going to decide, I want to start a business, is are you honest enough to admit you don't know what you don't know? And I always tell people, be honest about this. Let me give you an example. Let me illustrate this point. I was a high-tech executive for probably 25-plus years. And we were working on a project down in Louisiana with an oil company. And since I was going to be there over the weekend, one of the oil executives said to me, hey, Frank, we're going to take you on a tour of the Everglades on Saturday. So I'm there for the weekend. I said, sure, not a problem. So I arrive at the designated location. And then I realize as I looked out over the Everglades that Everglade is code for alligator infested swamp. So one of the oil executives must have noticed my body be tensing up in the fear. And he said to me, hey, Frank, we're going to have a guide coming to join us in about five minutes. And then he said something that I'll never forget. You know, he said, you know, Frank, I have lived in Louisiana my entire life, and I never go into the Everglades without a guide for two reasons. First reason is they know where they're going and they know what they're doing. And second, and even more important, is they know where not to go and they know what not to do. And then he continued, every year, we have people who come down here, they don't want to pay for the guidance, they don't want to pay for the expertise, they go into the water alone, and unfortunately, sometimes the alligators win. Now I hear this story 
from many aspiring entrepreneurs. They always say, hey, we're smart people. We'll figure this out. We're not going to pay for guidance. We can, we can figure this out. So they start throwing money down a bunch of different rabbit holes, trying to piecemeal a strategy. After they run out of money chasing this, I can do it myself model, they'll give us a call. Many times, it's just simply too late. The alligators have already won. Think about that. So my question today that we're going to address is, is imagination more important than intelligence? Now, when I first heard this statement, imagination is more important than intelligence, it made me wonder, is this going to be one of those chicken and an egg conversations where we're going to talk and argue for weeks and weeks and nobody's ever going to win? So I thought, well, let's, like a look, let's look into this. So I recently read that Albert Einstein is credited with the statement, imagination is more important than intelligence. Now, given Mr. Einstein is most likely the most intelligent person to ever walk the planet, I thought, we did, well, let's give this some merit and look into it a little more. So I started to look for similar statements, and I want two of them I want to share with you. First one was, if you can first dream it, you can achieve it. And that was the late coach, Jim Valvano, who was a basketball coach at uh, North Carolina State, and then ultimately founded the V Foundation for Cancer Research. And one that we're all familiar with is Dr. King's I Have a Dream. So these are three very intelligent people who use their imagination, said what if, and changed the world. So what's imagination do? Imagination creates a vision. And vision paints a picture that people can see and they can follow. Now let's think about some of these visions that caused action. Dr. King's dream. The V Foundation for Cancer Research. Again, it was founded on Jim Valvano's deathbed at Duke University. The Women's March after the 2016 election, and what appears to be after every, every year since then. Landing on the moon. That was a vision in, in, in the image that President Kennedy had. Didn't know how to do it, didn't know where it was going to occur, how it was going to occur, but it occurred because he led to action. Now, Dr. King's dream, that talk he gave, is the most impressive to me. It's 250,000 people showed up in Washington, D.C. on a very hot and humid day in 1964. There was no social media. There was no website to confirm the time and the date. There was no 24-hour news cycle or talk radio promoting it for weeks and weeks in advance. Yet, 250,000 people came because their vision of America matched Dr. King's vision of America. And when he spoke, what he did not say was, hey, I have a plan. I have a strategy. I have an idea. I want to have a concept I want to run past all of you people. Now, what he said to them was, I have a dream. And that dream inspired action. And that action changed the world. It can be done. Now, what do image, or excuse me, what do imagination and vision have in common? Well, let's take a step back. What do they not have in common? They don't belong to any particular race. No gender has a monopoly on it or ethnic group. It doesn't belong to any religion or lifestyle, and it certainly 
not limited to the political parties in the United States. The key with image, imagination and vision is everybody has the ability to use their imagination to create a vision. It's not limited to the rich, it's not limited to the famous, it is not limited to leaders. It's also not limited to a job title. I hear so often, well, the executives or the senior board or the CEO should be coming up with all these innovative, imaginative, visionary statements. Well, that's not necessarily the case. Image and imagination and vision often percolate up from the bottom. Let me give you an example. I was working with a company that enrolls students into a major university's online school. Okay, now this company runs a call center. The call centers are today's version of the old assembly lines. They're long, they're boring, they're tedious, and they're very, very repetitive. The division vice president asked me to come on in. He said, hey, Frank, will you take a look at our enrollment group, which is consistently below the industry averages, and why are we having so much turnover? So I said, sure, let's take a look. I asked him, I wanted to meet with three people. I'm going to ask all three people the same question. I want to see department manager. I want to see a shift supervisor. And I want to see one of your top performers. And the question that I asked them all was, describe the purpose of your job. The manager said to me, her statement was, my job is to enroll as many students as possible. All right, does that sound like it, it paints a picture for you? The supervisor said it's a numbers game. We talk to as many people as possible and we enroll them into the university. Once again, does that answer motivate you to take action? I don't think so. I finally asked the young woman who worked on the floor. She's a 24-year-old. She's a millennial. Now, we all have our, our opinion of millennials, but I'm going to read this to you because what she said just blew me away. She said, I help people take the first step to realizing their hopes and dreams by guiding them through the enrollment process at one of the greatest universities in the world. Now, who has vision? Obviously, that young woman has vision. Among my recommendations was to start training this young woman or, or to clone her and get her into management. Now, unfortunately, the organization didn't follow my suggestions, and many of their top performers, including this young woman, have moved on to another company. And we're going to take a short break here. When we come back, we'll continue with our conversation on creating an innovative mindset. Don't go away. You're not going to want to miss this next segment. You're listening to the Life Altering Events, and I'm Frank Sakari on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Contact me at the Life Altering Event page on thevoiceamerica.com by pressing email the host. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Find out what makes the most successful people tick. Keep listening to the Voice America Empowerment Channel. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com Book Frank Zakari as the motivational speaker at your next event. Frank is a dynamic, entertaining, and fascinating storyteller. Your organization will be entertained and will learn stories of success they can implement immediately. Email Frank today to secure him for your next event at lifealteringeventsradio at gmail.com or call 916-718-5517. 
Mention that you heard about it from the Life-Altering Events radio program. You can also visit Frank's website for more information at frankzakari.com. Frank Zakari has written five books spanning a range of life-altering events and how to handle them. When the Wife Cheats is about a man with two young daughters handling the devastating loss of a cheating wife. Inside the Spaghetti Bowl is about how one family stays together through both good and bad. Five Years to Live follows a couple through life after a tragic accident, recovery, and prognosis. From the Ashes is a turnaround management success story about the University of Washington volleyball team. Find the books at Amazon in print, audio, and Kindle formats and at frankzakari.com. Multiple studies show us that the vast majority of people are disengaged at work. A Gallup report stated that two-thirds of American workers are unhappy and 15% actually hate their work. That means that 81% are not engaged to work for a common goal. Frank Zakari and his team have programs to help you change this dynamic and create a collaborative and high-performing organization. Visit frankzakari.com to set up an initial consultation today. Find out what makes the most successful people tick. Keep listening to the Voice America Empowerment Channel. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com You are listening to Life-Altering Events with Frank Zakari. To call into the program today with questions or comments, please call 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Or you can send an email to LifeAlteringEventsRadio at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back. My name is Frank Zakari, and you are listening to Life-Altering Events on the Voice America Network Empowerment Channel. Just before the break, we were talking about imagination and vision, which leads to action. And we just told you a story about a young woman who worked in an organization that enrolled students into one of the major universities' online schools. And this is, again, as a 24-year-old woman, and I'm going to repeat this again because it's very important. Now, this is a millennial, and we all have opinions of millennials. And this 24-year-old woman said, I help people take the first step to realizing their hopes and dreams by guiding them through the enrollment process at one of the greatest universities in the world. That's vision. That would lead someone to want to take action, to want to enroll in this university. And this is a 24-year-old. So imagination and vision does not always come from the top down. It can come from anywhere in an organization. you got to be listening for it. Now, imagination and vision involve choices. Some of the choices you're going to have to make are, where are you now? Where do you want to be? What's stopping you from getting there? What resources are you going to need? Do you need employees? Do you need money? Do you need sponsors? Do you need collaborators? Can you define what it is that you're going to need? How are you going to do it? And then the most important choice that you're going to have to make is why. Why do you want to start a business? Why do you want to take this job? Why do you want to make a choice? So I had somebody who gave this talk at Arizona State, and one of the students said to me, so does this mean... If I have imagination and I can create a vision and I genuinely believe in my vision that I'm going to be successful. 
And I said, well, not necessarily. People really don't care what you do or how you do it. No matter what industry, what business you're in, there's probably a thousand other companies or people who do what you do, and they may even do it cheaper than you do. They might do it faster and for lower cost. What people care about is why you do what you do. Does your vision resonate with their vision? Let me give you another example here. A big question that I ask people all the time is, are you clearly articulating your vision? Does that vision paint a picture people can see and can follow? Does it lead to action? How do you know? I ask a lot of organizations, do you know why your employees work for you or why your customers do business with you? And everybody tells me, of course I know, Frank. It's because of what we do and how we do it. And I tell them, no, that's what you do and how you do it. That's not why. Very rarely do people tell me why. What you do and how you do it is not as important as why you do it. So whenever I start working with an organization, the first question I always ask, or the question I ask the most, is why? Let me give you an example here. I was working with a very tired, frustrated, depressed, and very struggling insurance agency. Now this man had spent over 20 years as a very successful high-tech executive. Now when his domestic situation changed and he found himself at the, as the custodial parent of his two young daughters who were 10 and 14 at the time. Now when I asked this man, you left high-tech to come into insurance. Why did you do that? And he said, well, in high tech, I used to travel over two weeks every month. And now that I have custody of my two young daughters, I, I simply can't travel. I have to be a full-time dad. Now, while this man is to be applauded for putting his children first, his why statement wasn't exactly leading people to his door. So I asked him, well, tell me about the business. And he said, I don't know much about the insurance industry. I, don't, I know very little about it. So I asked the local management, how, how do I do this? How do I get started? And this is what they told me. This is your best practice. They said, you put your office in a location. You draw a radius 15 to 20 miles around your office. Those are your target customers. Then you call them up. You have them come to your office. And you sell them insurance. And I said, well, that sounds easy. So then I asked him, how's it going? And he answered, not very well. And then he went on. The most profit that this agency had ever made, this agency he inherited, had ever made was $5,000. The guy before me sold a lot of policies and received commissions, but the agency was simply not profitable. Most of the customers he inherited, wanted the lowest possible amount of insurance and wanted to pay the lowest possible price. They told me they constantly pay late and most of my time is spent calling for payment or putting canceled policies back into force. And the look on his face was total exasperation and depression. And then he took a deep breath and he looked me directly in the eyes and he said, I hate what I'm doing. 
So I said, okay, let's take a deep breath here. If you are following what you were told is the best practice and it's not working for you, then it's not a best practice, is it? And he said, well, I guess not. And I said, you don't have a vision. Right now, you're basically blindly following the crowd. I said, well, let's see what we can do about this. Let's change a few things. We changed his why statement. Why is he doing this to we protect our customers' hopes and dreams? That's why you're in this business. Then we changed his how statement to we provide the best possible service and coverage for the fairest price. Not the lowest price, the fairest price. Now, neither one of those statements do we mention what he does, which is to sell insurance. And you know why we don't mention that? Because nobody cares that he sells insurance. In the city he lives in, there's 600 other agents that sell insurance. What they want to know, what people want to know, is why are you selling insurance? We then said, well, let's take a look at your target market. So we said, let's redefine this target market. The, the prior owner, his idea was he wanted anybody with a pulse to be his customer. And I said, and what did that do for you? That's leading you to constantly calling for late payments and, and reinstating canceled policies. So obviously that model's not working. So let's redefine this target market. So we said, let's look at business professionals with an average household, with a, with a minimum household income of $150,000. They have to have at least one house, two cars, and children. And instead of them coming to see you, you drive to their offices and then homes and you meet with them. Now, why do we choose those people? Because those are people who have hopes and dreams they want to protect. So his vision and their vision clearly resonated together. Now, this individual quickly started to secure businesses, business from the right customers all throughout the state of California. He was going up to the, if you're familiar with California, he was going up to the Oregon border, out to the Nevada border, through the San Francisco Bay Area, into the Central Valley. He even had customers down in San Diego, California, and this office was based in Sacramento. These were the right kind of customers. They saw his value and why he sold insurance was the reason why they wanted to buy insurance. So within two years, this agency made $750,000 in profit. Now remember, when he took it over, the most that it had ever made was five. Now it was making 750. Over the 13 years that this man owned this business, it averaged $400,000 a year in profit, every year. Even with all the fires in California, he still averaged $400,000 in profit a year. More importantly, or more impressive to me, was he retained over 90% of his customers. 90%. If you're talking to the insurance agency, that's unheard of. Very few people retain 90% of, of their customers. So what made the difference here? The difference was he separated himself from the thousands of other insurance agencies who sell on price. 
on TV every 30 seconds, it seems, we have another insurance commercial. And they're always talking about how much money they can save you. And we are a low price and all this stuff. And everything is price, price, price. If your focus is price, you have just made yourself a commodity. And if you're a commodity, then you have no real value. So low price is going to win. We changed this model and said, you are selling value. You're protecting people's hopes and dreams, and you're going out there to meet with them, not trying to deal with it on the phone or via email. You're sitting face-to-face, -face and that brings value. His value is protecting the customer's hopes and dreams. That value matched why his customers want to buy insurance. Now, after 13 years of owning this business, he sold it, and now he is living a good life. Last I heard, he was in Costa Rica. And I said, send me a ticket. So once again, the key question is, does your vision paint a picture that people can see and they can follow? What choices do you still need to make? All right, let's talk about best practices. Now, this gentleman in the insurance agency was told this was the best practice was to put your office in a 15 to 20 mile radius around your customers, and that flat out was not working. Now, best practices is a term that absolutely, absolutely drives me crazy. It is not gospel, it is not written in stone, and it is not a forever thing. A best practice is simply a point in time. I talk to so many businesses, so many organizations, and they tell me, you know, Frank, hey, I'm following the best practices for my industry, but I'm floundering. It's just, I don't know what's not working. Again, like we said to the gentleman in the insurance, if it isn't working for you, then it's not a best practice. What you should be looking for is the next practice, something that differentiates you. Now, in the beginning of this talk here, we talked about that business is changing, the business world is changing so fast that it's beyond our ability to comprehend. Now, history is littered with organizations that religiously followed their best practice all the way to extinction. Let me give you a couple examples. Before, when the, when the, when the telephone industry was regulated, the only place that you could get a telephone was from Western Electric. And you couldn't buy the phone. You had to rent it forever. Now, Western Electric did give you some options. They had some flexibility. Their options of color were black. And their option, option of style was you can either hang it on the wall or you can put it on your desk. And those are your choices. Now, that is tremendously efficient manufacturing practice. Now, when the telephone industry deregulated, people could choose their own carrier and they could choose whatever kind of phone they want. And they didn't want a black phone. They wanted red phones or princess phones or Mickey Mouse phones. Western Electric, however, continued to follow its practice of limited options for manufacturing efficiency they were going to hold true to manufacturing efficiency. Western Electric no longer exists. Let me give you another story here. A&P, Atlantic Pacific, was the first great grocery store chain. 
and they followed their best practice. Their best practice was simply this. We will have the same product in every store, in the same aisle, and on the same shelf. That is total efficiency. AMP's mindset was, look, don't worry about what it is you need. We know what you need. We have it. You just come and get what we have. How do you think that worked? Well, AMP never adjusted to the demographics of a local population or consumer tastes. AMP no longer exists. The disruptive, the survivors, are disruptive organizations. These are people who challenge the best practice and say, yeah, I hear what the best practice is, but, but what, if, what if we did this? And who are these companies? You all know who they are. They're Apple and Google and Amazon and Netflix. And you can name a dozen others yourself. These are companies that decided that the established best practice was simply not for them. They created a vision, they took action, and they changed the world. We're coming up on another break here. We, 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 when we come back, we'll continue the story of how disruptive organizations have with creative mindsets have altered the world. You're listening to the Life-Altering Events, and I am Frank Zakari on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. You can contact me at the Life-Altering Event page on Voice America by pressing email the host. I'd love to hear from you. Stay with us. Live up to your fullest potential. This is the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Book Frank Zakari as the motivational speaker at your next event. Frank is a dynamic, entertaining, and fascinating storyteller. Your organization will be entertained and will learn stories of success they can implement immediately. Email Frank today to secure him for your next event at lifealteringeventsradio at gmail.com or call 916-718-5517. Mention that you heard about it from the Life Altering Events radio program. You can also visit Frank's website for more information at frankzakari.com. Frank Zakari has written five books spanning a range of life-altering events and how to handle them. When the Wife Cheats is about a man with two young daughters handling the devastating loss of a cheating wife. Inside the Spaghetti Bowl is about how one family stays together through both good and bad. Five Years to Live follows a couple through life after a tragic accident, recovery, and prognosis. From the Ashes is a turnaround management success story about the University of Washington volleyball team. Find the books at Amazon in print, audio, and Kindle formats and at frankzakari.com. Multiple studies show us that the vast majority of people are disengaged at work. A Gallup report stated that two-thirds of American workers are unhappy and 15% actually hate their work. That means that 81% are not engaged to work for a common goal. Frank Zakari and his team have programs to help you change this dynamic and create a collaborative and high-performing organization. Visit frankzakari.com to set up an initial consultation today. Live up to your fullest potential. This is the Voice America Empowerment Channel.
You are listening to Life-Altering Events with Frank Zakari. To call into the program today with questions or comments, please call 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Or you can send an email to lifealteringeventsradio at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back. My name is Frank Zakari, and you are listening to Life-Altering Events on Voice America Empowerment Network. Just before the break, we were talking about companies who have challenged the established best practice. These are disruptive organizations who said, what if? Yes, I hear the best practice, but it doesn't fit for me. We're going to try something different. And those companies have changed the world. Apple, Google, Amazon, Netflix. You can name many others yourself. Now, what if ideas, these great ideas, don't always come from senior management? We mentioned that earlier in this show. Now, let me give you a real-life example here. When Starbucks first started up in Seattle, it was across the street from the Pikes Market. Now, if any of you have ever been to Seattle, the Pikes Market is where they have the fish market and they throw the fish, and they're always on the commercials throughout Seattle. Well, the original Starbucks was in the middle of a block across the street. On one end of the block was a coffee shop named Tully's. At the end of the block was another coffee shop called Seattle's Best. And in the middle of the block was Starbucks. All three of these organizations at that time in the 80s were following the established best practice. And that was coffee-only related drinks. So we're looking at coffee, espresso, cappuccino, latte, flavored coffees, etc., None of them had a blender. Blenders were an unwanted expense. Blenders break down. Blenders slow down the line. And for God's sakes, in the 1980s, who ever thought that someone would pay over $5 for a coffee drink? Well, a young, young man, Starbucks employee in Santa Monica, California, decided you know what, I'm going to bring my own blender from home. And I'm going to start making blended drinks. Frappuccinos, etc. those types of blended drinks. And he put them out as samples, where you pay at Starbucks and they sometimes will have samples there for you. And the customers tried them. And the customers loved them. And they started asking for it. Now Starbucks, to its credit, saw this trend and changed their established best practice. The others were a little slow on the uptake. In 2018, Starbucks generated $24.7 billion in revenue. Okay, let's repeat that number. $24.7 billion. Now, depending on what estimates you read or believe, 50% of the revenue comes from blended drinks. That's $12.6 billion because someone said, what if and challenge the established best practice. Now this innovative mindset that we are talking about understands the importance of collaboration. They understand, and I'm not gonna be able to fight this battle by myself. If your input only comes from people who look and act and think like you, who have had the same experience and the same background as you, you are gonna have an organization that does what we call group think. There isn't going to be no innovation. There isn't going to be anybody willing to try anything else because everybody is thinking and saying the same things. 
I was working with a banker, and he said to me, Frank, you know, the big problem we have here is when I look around the room, everybody looks like me. Older, fat, white guys. Not to pick on old, fat, white guys, but he said, I'm getting no input other than what I already think. We have to change this. Get input from people who have been there and done that, but also find successful people outside of your immediate circle. Let me give you a story here. This actually happened. I was working with a, a group of nonprofits, 19 or 20 nonprofit organizations who deal with youth and family-related issues. They were trying to find a way to collaborate rather than compete with each other. Half of nonprofits failed after the last recession, and many of these people were afraid that they were going to fail on the next recession. So as we we're sitting there going through this, all these nonprofits, they're relatively small, they all have separate infrastructures. They all have their own IT and information technology group. They have their own event planning, grant writing, accounting, event coordinators, etc. And they've been struggling for months on how to address this. So I suggested, let's do a little round table and bring in some executives from, out, from outside of this nonprofit world. So we did that. We had a little brainstorming session. So about 10 minutes or so into this meeting, a retired high-tech executive says, I would suggest what you have sounds like you need to create a center of excellence. He said, in the high-tech sector, this is very commonplace. You take your specialists from each area, each of the common areas, and you put them in one location. So they truly become experts at what it is you're trying to do. You can get higher caliber people, pay them more, and then you can share across the board. This is a way to collaborate without having to replicate the wheel 46 times, okay? It was shocking. It was like a light had come on or a curtain had been lifted and blinders had been removed. They said, we never thought of that. Now, these are smart, passionate people, and why didn't they come up with this idea? Because it was outside of their best practice. Rather than looking for the next practice, they were hanging on to, this is the way we always do it. This is, makes sense. Well, it wasn't working. Now, collaboration, once you start collaborating, you will develop a shared vision, and a shared vision builds your culture. Peter Drucker was credited with saying that culture eats strategy for breakfast. A great strategy in a poor culture is going to fail. Culture reflects your vision. Again, it inspires people to move, it inspires action. And you have to appeal to people's head for the profit model, and you have to appeal to their heart. There has to be a purpose for why you do what you do. Your culture is set very early in the organization's life, and once a culture is created, it is very difficult to change. Very difficult to change. A poor culture creates self-sabotage. If you talk to organizational development experts, they say a poor culture, people lose hope. It breeds mediocrity. They settle for good enough, and your best people leave. They're just burned out, and they leave. 
For business owners, I tell them, hey, this burnout is more than somebody being tired. Gallup and in Eastern University, Eastern Kentucky University just released a study. It said that disengaged or burned out employees cost American businesses $550 billion a year in annual loss productivity. So creating a collaborative and a positive culture has a massive impact on your bottom line. It's not just a, a touchy-feely story. So when you think about people who had great strategies and poor cultures that failed, who comes to mind? Well, for me, it's Enron and Uber. We don't know if Uber is going to succeed here or if they're going to continue to be successful. Bear Stearns and Lehman Brothers after the financial meltdown. And then the king of great culture, poor strategy, excuse me, the other way around, great strategy, poor culture, Bernie Madoff. What you have with a great culture is self-sustaining. It has to be clear and consistent and constant. One of my old bosses in the high-tech sector said, Frank, here's the best way to build a culture. He says it's called KISS. Keep it simple, stupid. Review it, monitor, adjust it as needed. It has to be sustainable and repeatable. People must know what to expect, and they have to know how to respond. I work with a woman named Nicole Bendali, and she's going to be on the show in a couple of weeks, and she tells me culture is not what you do. Culture is what you are. Very important point. Now let's talk about a couple of real powerful cultures. Apple and Harley-Davidson. Apple and Harley-Davidson, both of them are the highest price product in their sector. Both of them, you have to wait a long time before you get the product. I see people with Apple at the Apple stores and they're lined up around the block to get whatever the new Apple devices that's coming out and they're paying more for it than they could for something else. Harley-Davidson, sometimes you wait three to six months to get, get your motorcycle after you order it. They both sell almost as much in merchandise as they have in, in product. And these customers will never leave them. They have created a culture that this is what you are. You're an Apple, you're a Harley person, this is what you are. Now up till now, we've been talking about theory versus uh, uh, theory. Okay? Theory is one thing, and the re real world is something completely different. Now I want to share with you very quickly 10 best practices, poor word, 10 business examples, 10 models that I have used in the past that have been very successful. Now you don't have to write these down, I wrote them down for you. They're in my book, From the Ashes, The Rise of the University of Washington Volleyball Program. First thing as you're trying to look to create this innovative mindset is to find the right leader. Surround yourself with the best possible people. People that are better than you in their area of expertise. I've often told people, if you're the smartest guy in the room, you're in the wrong room. Number two, clearly articulate the vision. We've been talking about this all along. Everybody must know and they must buy in to what this vision is. Third is inspire others to believe. Celebrate small victories and successes. When you try something new, there's going to be initial pushback. When you try something new initially, it's going to get worse before it gets better. And as you have success, celebrate that. A new customer, a new win in a volleyball match, a new program that just rolled out. Fourth one is clearly define the skills and the traits that you need. 
Now, this is important because I get approached by a number of organizations and they say, hey, Frank, look at this job description that I have here. What do you think? And a lot of them will say, most of them will say, must have expertise in Excel or Microsoft Office or Salesforce or whatever. And I look at these people and say, can't these skills be taught? And they say, yeah, of course they can be taught, but it would be better if they knew them. All right, well, so I then challenge them, wouldn't it be better if you look for people who had integrity or determination or persistence or willingness to collaborate? These traits come from within the individual. You either have them or you don't. The fifth one is select the right people and put them in the best position to succeed. Now, Jim Collins wrote a book called Good to Great, and in that book he said, get the right people on the bus and get them in the right seats and get the wrong people off the bus. The sixth one that we used was focus on details and training. This is what we do and how we do it, but more importantly, this is why we do what we do. Everything must be documented. Everybody must know what to do. The system has to work without key people being there. Here's a volleyball example. University of Washington and Arizona State volleyball, women's volleyball. At one point, they were one of the top two teams in the nation. They were two of the top five teams in the nation. Both cases, their best player, their All-American, was injured. When Arizona State's All-American was injured, they lost 15 of the next 16 matches. They simply did not know what to do without her there. When Washington lost their All-American, they won 11 of the next 12 matches with her out. They knew what to do. Everyone knew the role. Now, the replacement was not as good. However, they understood that the system could still work, and they knew what to do. The eighth one is the review all aspects and adjust as needed. So whatever you're doing today, keep reviewing it and improving it. The ninth thing we did was constantly raise the bar, bring in people who are better than the people you currently have. Again, going to Washington Volleyball. In 2005, they won the national title. In 2010, we brought them back for a celebration of the five-year anniversary. Some of the players came early. They were watching practice. And they said to me, you know, Frank, I'm glad I played when I played because I don't think I could make this team. And I looked at him and said, come on, you were a national champion. Of course you'd make this team. And they said, I don't know. I think they're better. The last one is don't lose sight of the goal. Once you have success, stay focused. Success breeds complacency, which leads to failure. Now, in the beginning, I said, is imagination more important than intelligence? And the answer is, I don't know. But I do know imagination plus vision and culture and determination is far better, far better than intelligence alone. We all know an awful lot of very intelligent people who are driving buses or tending bars. So where do you go from here? What do you do now is up to you. You have to make the choice. Now, Pope John, Pope John the 23rd, he was Pope when I was, when I was in grade school. That was, so that was a long, long time ago. And he said something that applies here. He said, it often happens that I wake up at night to begin to think about a serious problem, and I decide I must tell the Pope about this. Then I wake up and I realize I am the Pope. You are the Pope. You have to choose. Well, we're almost out of time here today. I want to uh, thank you for listening and... I hope you enjoyed this creating an innovative mindset. Remember this, no matter what life throws your way, look up, get up, and never ever give up. Pick up the pieces and start moving forward. Better times and better people will enter your life. If you'd like to contact me, please go to the Life 
altering event page on Voice America and press email the host and email me. We'll sit down, we'll chat and talk. You can also hear this on demand 24 hours after by going to Voice America Life Altering Event page and press listen now for this show. Let me leave you with this. The key to walking on water is to know where the rocks are. Thank you very much. Thank you for tuning in to Life-Altering Events. Be sure to join Frank Zakari again next Tuesday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time and 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Have a life-changing week. The Good Kind.